And a lot of the therapy that we do is really laying out how many ways they've been marginalized because yeah. of this identity, how it's impacted them and really doing the work to discuss each story and to really process it in a way that allows them to let go and to continue to move forward in their journey. Hi, welcome to the Flare Up Show. This is Chrissy Cordingly, your host. And it's called the Flare Up Show, of course, as always, because it's a play on words. People with illness or chronic issues, even mental health, sometimes we have an onset of symptoms and that can be triggered by all sorts of different things. And we call them flare ups. And what I learned through my illness uh, and going through life is that every time I had a flare up, it sucked. <laughs> But I learned a lot about my body, about my healing process, about my grit, about what I could do and what I needed. You know, if I needed rest or that, it helped me become more in tune with myself. So every time I flared up, I leveled up. So that's why I call it the Flare Up Show. And today I have an amazing guest. Her name is Maya Nelson and she's from Florida. And she is a University of Central Florida grad with a background in intimate partner violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, the child welfare system, and at-risk youth. So she's a therapist. And she also does uh, race-based trauma. Uh, she does LGBTQ affirmative care. So she does a lot. She works with people with lots of different backgrounds, gender identities, religious beliefs, family systems, and relational status. And her goal really is to clear the fog of mind that stops clients from seeing their own strength, courage, beauty, and ultimately the answers that they know are inside of themselves. They learn that really they know <laughs> the, the answers to a lot of their things. They just may not have the confidence or belief, whether that was from the world pushing them around um, or other deep-seated trauma that could have come from their household or from previous generations even. So it's, it's such a great talk. So we talk about a lot of different things when it comes to therapy. We talk a lot about different topics that are very sort of uh, relevant to the news in the world today <laughs> and how society is sort of acting upon things. So this is an episode that I, sometimes when I edit, because I do listen to the episode, after it's all edited, the day's release, I listen to the episode in full then. But often when I edit, I listen to sort of the beginning and the end, and I look for that piece in the middle, and I don't do a lot of editing. And this one, I didn't do a lot of editing, but it was, I love listening to her so much. And I'm just so inspired by her curiosity and intelligent uh, thoughts and just her empathy for people, the compassion. I listened to the whole thing as I was editing it. I just, I couldn't walk away from it. So I hope that you have the same experience as you listen to my Nelson, as we talk about trauma-informed care. Uh, and she'll also mention that she has a support group that is free for anybody that wishes to participate that is a, uh, identifies as a black woman. Uh, it's called Femme Noir and it's a support group on Wednesday evenings done by Zoom. And so they can join and talk about anything relevant to their lives. And uh, so she talked about that, but it's also on her website. So take a look in the show notes. And she does services all over North America. She can do virtual services and she is really eclectic. So she really works on 
budget around budgets and needs. So don't hesitate to reach out to her. Um, she loves having conversations with people. So don't hesitate to reach out to Maya in any shape or form. You will feel so blessed to be in her presence. She's just amazing. Um, so I introduce you. So, oh, the other thing is, unfortunately, when we started our conversation, I, I was having some technical issues with my internet. And uh, so it's missing the part where I say, where I introduce her so when you get to the episode part, it's just going to start with her saying, yes, ma'am, this is my expertise. So I did a little introduction, but it got lost in the garbly gook of my internet connection at that time. Uh, so <laughs> that is the actual beginning of the podcast. It's going to sound a little strange, but I just want to let you know. Um, but yeah, so there you go. Please welcome Maya Nelson to The Therap Show. But first, a message from our affiliate. Eat help, adulting. You know, it can be overwhelming thinking of all the balls that we need to juggle between our own self-care, our families, our careers, our homes, our finances, and so much more in life, right? And sometimes we're just not really sure how we can take control of everything. Do I even know what I want? Do I still have dreams for myself? I'm having trouble focusing. I start and then quit every single time. My thoughts and ideas are all over the place. I just want more out of life. There has to be more than this. If you've thought of any of those questions, then I have a workbook for you. It's called the Happy Life Planner and we take it 90 days at a time. And what this workbook does, it will help you feel in control of your life, focus on what you are capable of, release stress and your limiting beliefs and help you organize and prioritize your busy life. So the Happy Life Planner is now available on Amazon, created with love to remind you to take care of the most important person in your world, you. Yes, ma'am. My area of expertise is trauma-informed care. And most of that has been in spaces where there's domestic violence usually going on, or I'm working with very, very unruly is a nice word, youth, yes. teenagers. Yes. Or been with sexual assault victims. So it's been in different places where I've been tasked with kind of figuring out how to deal with kind of the emotional consequences of some of the traumatic experiences those Absolutely. patients have. Absolutely. That's heavy stuff. So how does Maya take care of Maya? Cause I'm sure that, you know, you're like, I've mentioned this already that you're, you, you're very empathetic. So how do you keep from taking that on into your own heart sometimes? I'm sure some of the stuff you hear is horrific. Absolutely. Well, I think time and expertise has helped to kind of just or not expertise experience. Yep. Um, but That's expertise. You can say you're an expert. <laughs> I, I think you are. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you. But it's really been speaking to other people who are in that, in the field with me and just expressing how I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. So kind of unloading with them, yeah. but then also taking a lot of time to just relax, whether that's like salt baths or going to the beach at a time where most people aren't just to kind of zen out and relax with nature so just doing things that I really enjoy that recenter me and that has been, that's changed the game for me. Yeah. That sounds very grounding. I love that back to nature. So 
trauma-informed care just I think a lot of my audience will probably know because there are a lot of people that are have trauma that tune into this show and myself included but and um, there might be people tuning in that don't understand because trauma-informed care is I think it's been around a while but maybe the term has become more popular recently or more people are paying attention to the idea of bringing in trauma-informed professionals in a bunch of different areas not even just for therapy mm -hmm. but like trauma-informed police trauma-informed doctors mm -hmm. trauma-informed teachers so what does trauma-informed mean it's like you're so right and you're on it Chrissy where trauma means so much we've heard the word all over the place but it just means kind of being aware yeah. of the severity of maybe the malbehaviors that someone has come across. So a difference may be if I'm in a school as a teacher, I might be working with one 13 year old who may have parents who may argue from here to there, but they're able to find a middle ground. They're able to communicate with one another and it's relatively peaceful, but they still have their problems with school between gossiping and lying and all this stuff that teenagers do. Mm -hmm. And they're all not gossipy. Oh my gosh, I know he looked at her. He looked at her, I know he's supposed to be dating me. It's all of that. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, if you have a 13-year-old girl who might have just come from another country, yeah. or they might be dealing with, let's say they were abused, sexually abused, or even physically abused. Then now for that child, they're not only going through those changes that that other 13-year-old was going through, but they're also having to deal with the trauma that they've been through, through some of those chasms. So it's more like if a 13-year-old doesn't believe in their self-worth because of what's happened, they may act out more. They might have more tantrums. They might be more disrespectful. They might go zero to 100 very quickly. Yeah. You may notice you know, on one day they're happy. And the next day they're sad and we're thinking, oh, they're just teenagers, but it might just be the volatility of their emotions because of what they've experienced or what they're currently experiencing at home. So it's really just that sensitivity yeah. to, to serious negative behavior. Or they could be wounded more easily too, right? Because some people that go through trauma don't do the lashing out, they lash inwards. So, Absolutely. so something like a teasing or a little bit of gossip about them could be the straw that pushes them over the edge, right? So we don't know what people have gone through. We can't tell just by looking at someone what they've gone through by any means whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, you, I love that you work. One of the things that you do with your work is you love to, you help people again, because I guess I would sort of put it, I, I've, I've heard this term before. So someone that maybe has gone through trauma may see their day-to-day -day through the lens of their scar tissue. Like they sort of wear that trauma glasses, right? So everything has a different color, a different scent because it's infused with where they grew up or whatever had happened to them in the past, right? They can't see things just for they are right now because they have to pass it through that lens first, right? To determine what the danger is in this particular situation. Yes. So they're kind of biased towards the hurt, right? And for good reason, trauma is awful. Um, but you also help people determine the difference between stress and rational responses which you sort of alluded to right like everybody's parents have had arguments there's family disagreements there's things and we are supposed to have some amount of conflict in our lives we can't just be you know buddha all the time but because <laughs> we're human we're not perfect but you help people determine the difference between stress and rational responses 
to life's challenges and then when it's actually bordering on mental illness so there's like a threshold that you pass so what are some of the key indicators that therapy may be a better option for someone than just self-care or just stress reduction techniques yes that's a wonderful question I think it's kind of it's different for everyone to be quite honest because for some people they just they feel like something might be off with them yeah so they go into therapy and that's what their focus is but <laughs> you usually know <laughs> and those are some of the best clients to have it's usually anxiety that's plaguing them and other things that they might be concerned with mm -hmm. but really it's when you feel like you've lost handle over your emotional self yeah and I think that's a very human thing to go through but there's there's varying degrees of that so for some of us, we might just, so we might be at a drive-through and someone say something rude to us and then we have, we lash out. We might start going off at the mouth. <laughs> we're going and we're going and we're going and we're like, what is going on? You know, your partner's in the other seat, like, are you okay? So that's one extent. But yeah. then you may have a whole nother level where somebody's in the middle of the street and they're running around and they're screaming and yelling at the top of their lungs. So mm. the, the way that you know that you really have to get that therapy is when you start to lose that handle overall. And for some people, it's going to be small things that kind of give you that signifier. And for other people, it has to be something massive. And yeah, it's unfortunate sometimes how we get to therapy. But. Yeah, well, I think, well, I guess for some people that, again, that threshold, right? Like, where there that threshold maybe self-awareness right mm -hmm. that they some can recognize it more quickly or maybe maybe they're more quickly to blame themselves so they automatically think I need to get fixed so I'll go to therapy that's probably yeah. me that's why I'm just like I, I'm probably the problem so let's go to therapy but uh, <laughs> but for other people they might have a really hard time and again if they've had a lot of trauma and they've been hurt it could be hard to look at your past right or hard to look at your own behavior because you're opening wounds to heal them. You got to open them up, right? So it would be challenging for people, I would think. Um, and that shame that we get, right? So we can really, you're also very open about shame that we can feel when we have mental illness and how we can work through that. Why do you think we are so easily ashamed of mental illness? And how can we work through that sort of that human conditioning or response that we seem to have towards mental illness now? Yeah. There's so many reasons for that, I feel, Chrissy. And I think that begins a lot with, with our general society, of course. Yeah. yeah. Just look into history. <laughs> 50 years back, you know, 60 years back, it is not pretty. It's kind of like you don't want anybody to know. You do want to live in the shadows because those asylums looked wild. Nobody wants to go there. Yeah. And you have that on one end, but also. For instance, if there's somebody who has borderline personality disorder, which is really like a difficulty communicating with others, so on and so forth. But if someone has that, typically it's not just genetic. Sometimes or too often when I've seen that diagnosis, that person comes from a highly traumatic background. Yeah. And there's a lot of not listening, not, well, excuse me, not being heard, not being validated not being seen, being told that what you are is not what you are, reinforcing lying behavior. Yeah. And then there may be other abuses that are happening as well. So for years, that person is already hearing, I'm not good enough. I don't need to be seen. I should be ashamed of me being here. Anything I feel that isn't what this person wants is not right. So you have all of that 
And then when you finally get to the diagnosis, there's that added shame of whatever it is and how people perceive it. Mm -hmm. So it's layered, unfortunately. And it really comes down to the person, the therapist and their community, of course, their family, their support to help to process that because there doesn't need to be any shame. No. No, there doesn't need to be at all. It's not their fault. It's not God opening the sky and saying, well, you are less than everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> it's just a byproduct of experiences. And now it's just, okay, how do we pick up the pieces from here? Or even just even operate better from here in general. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how, like, how do we as a society start breaking open some of these barriers for people to getting help or to understanding that the brain is just another organ? I mean, people have a heart attack. They tell everybody, I had a heart attack. I have a heart problem. But when people are mentally ill, they're like, shh. But it's a brain. It's the same as the heart, right? But it's it's so different. So how can we as a society start helping accept and and foster these conversations where people can feel more comfortable or safe uh, in sharing their stories? Indeed. I think we're seeing some of that now, that shift. Yeah. But I think someone whose work really focuses on kind of that societal effect, and he has even more expertise, is Dr. Gabor Mate. Yes. Uh, see, there we go. I was like, does yeah. he know <laughs> and I'm like, I'm trauma. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of my philosophy has just been barred from him, honestly, and him opening my eyes so much as far as that we're, we're growing up in a society that's very competitive and that could be very, you know, let's put everything on social media. That's great. But let's mm. not talk about else. So it's those little behaviors that kind of just build up together. And if you already kind of have those, those some of those mental illnesses, it just kind of makes it worse. But in the same way that someone who may have a mental illness is denying it at times because they don't want to see it because it is embarrassing or it hurts. And we don't want to go to those painful emotions and memories. No, Our society seems to do the same thing. It's like, do we want to talk about people being too over-aggressive? Because then what does that conversation lead to? (laughs) You know, it's like, what, what type of behaviors do we have to change in policies? So we're kind of in this weird space and <laughs> trying to find ways <laughs> to really, I think on a small level, us having these conversations, of course. Yes. And I think, you know, being able to see more people, more celebrities are talking about their mental illnesses. So mm-hmm. as it becomes more normalized, I think a lot of that shame, I'm praying so that it begins to dwindle away. Me too. I hope we're on a progressive route. I mean, there's a lot of people trying to hold the world back. So we'll, they're pretty loud. So we'll see how this goes. But I, w- I was really impressed, like even with say sensory processing disorder, which my oldest child has, they're 16. And a lot of people bug them because they wear headphones all the time. But that's how they deal. That's how they cope because stimulus is really tough for them. They're so sensitive. Um, but then there was somebody on the red carpet. I can't remember her name. Some celebrity that wore her noise canceling headphones on the red carpet. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, this is so good. Like, I'm not a freak. No, not at all. Like you, you just have needs and it's okay to beat your needs. Like it's, it's yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's weird. I think working with some kids, I recognize that they're so strange children in general when they're five, <laughs> seven years old <laughs> they're so fine with being weird and yes. it's liberating I envy them because they're just running around and they're like I'm gonna put my head down now and I'm just totally. gonna run on the floor totally. it's totally so it is <laughs> awesome 
It is mm-hmm. awesome. I remember being when I I'll share a little mm-hmm. private story that I don't mind sharing on the podcast, but I when I first got divorced, my ex and I would go to group therapy, like family counseling to help the kids sort of settle into the new reality of what our family was going to look like. And I was always very like, let them do what they do. Like kids wriggle, kids move around, like let them do. And he was always very strict, right? Like, no, they should behave themselves. They should sit up straight, blah, blah, blah. Just kind of old school. Right. And we were in this counselor's office and the kids were doing their thing. I think they were like five and eight. Right. So of course they're like super Mm -hmm. fidgety and they're nervous. It's a divorce, right? Like it's, they're not yeah and they're fidgeting and they're playing and they're doing somersaults and stuff trying to distract themselves and I remember my ex getting so mad and even the counselor's like hey like let them be like what's the big deal they're doing what they feel like they need to do right now like just ignore it like just let them like you don't need to police their behavior. they're not embarrassing any of us you're the only one that's embarrassed by it so here we go I love that yeah that that story is so impactful because it's true. Yeah, I love how you were able to provide that space for your kids to just be mm-hmm. and to exist, and to, and then to normalize the fact that they're being kids instead of feeling like okay, we need to be, you know, stuck in the seat and perfect all the time. That's not <laughs> how. That's not how it has to be. No, and- no. And my kids taught me that because it was it was sort of an uphill battle with them because they were so. They, I mean, we all have ADHD in this household. I'm sure it's no surprise to you once you've met me, but they, <laughs> they, um, so they've always been very bouncy and busy and talkative and really wonderful, lively kids. And that can be exhausting, but it's also really, really fun. It's really, really fun. But yeah, it, they taught me how to be more relaxed and more like, oh, this is who you are. This is so cool. Like you're not just a little mini me, you're your own little person. Show me more. So you have to have a curiosity, I think, when it comes to even trauma or even mental health, right? Like just just stay curious about it and and listen to what other people are experiencing. Just because Mm -hmm. someone experiences something different with you doesn't mean they're not experiencing it. Like it's, I don't, I don't know why, why we stop listening to each other. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I'm rambling now. Sorry, Maya. I loved it. That was perfect. <laughs> You're awesome. You're my new best friend. And <laughs> so I, I think we're going to spend a lot of time on this next topic because I think it's really, really important. And especially right now in the times where, again, everything is so loud and everyone's got these very noisy opinions, but they're not really in a position to have some of these opinions, I would say. So what I love, what I really want to start talking about a bit more in depth is your therapy for race-based trauma, and then also a bit about the LGBTQ plus affirmative care. Um, we talked about the stigma of mental illness when there's, there's stigma already there, but then when you put in the other layers of say gender or sexuality and then ethnicity, right? The color of your skin, some of those stigmas, and then the potential danger, like when I think about you know, like my oldest who's LGBTQ and I think about friends that are very aware of maybe the color of their skin, there, there could be danger to that person expressing their needs when they healthily and normally respond to a situation or a person being hurtful to them. Like it is rational to say, please stop doing that. But then to be called aggressive for doing it simply because of who you are or because mm-hmm. you've been passive in past, 
right? Like it's this policing of behavior, appearance, and vernacular. We're just, we're just seeing it everywhere. And actually it's, and yeah, anyways, I'll tell the the story in a little bit, but how does this, so now we take marginalized people and we Mm -hmm. want to give them care. We want to teach them to not only regulate themselves, but do they feel like sometimes they have to regulate other people too? Like, do they start to pull up this hypervigilance? Like I'm trying to now control my entire environment and everybody around me so that I don't get extra hurt or I'm worried about their feelings in this too. And, and how much damage that do to another person to be so hyper aware of what other people might perceive them as. Wow. Chrissy, that's a big question. And you're mm-hmm. right. To take, that could take a while. To yeah. Let's to. talk about it. I want to hear all about <laughs> it. Yeah. Let's do it. But um, absolutely. That hypervigilance definitely has an effect and even there's been studies out um, as far as during COVID when you kind of saw a lot of that protesting and mm-hmm. were out in the streets, a lot of people were more aggravated and they were locked up at home. During those times, they did a study about teenage kids and the effect of seeing a lot of these police brutality videos on social media and also on TV. And it had a negative impact on them. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of gave them not obviously not PTSD, but it gave them symptoms that were adjacent to that. They felt like they couldn't express themselves. They felt more anxious when they saw police. They felt that they couldn't be safe. And while race-based trauma and LGBTQ plus affirmative care is not the same thing, Mm -mm. they're very similar to that big beast of oppression that a lot of sociologists and other people would talk about. So even if we were to say, okay, let's take put race to the side, let's say LGBTQ plus to the side. Yeah. As you and I, as women, right? As we're growing up, there's certain coded language mm-hmm. that says, so if we are going to be around a lot of men, we may be more vigilant about where the door is, where the window is, how much we're drinking, who who's on our phone. We may be preparing an exit more than a six foot man who is, who is 200 something pounds, who's just out to meet his friends. He may not have all those thoughts because for him, I'm a man, I'm big enough. I, I don't have to think about someone potentially attacking me. Whereas yep. for you and that may be very different. So it does shift a lot of their behavior. And a lot of the therapy that we do is really laying out how many ways they've been marginalized because yeah. of this identity, how it's impacted them and really doing the work to discuss each story and to really process it in a way that allows them to let go and to continue to move forward in their journey, um, just even better. So it's it's really a long process, to be honest, because <laughs> you're not only saying to someone, hey, there's this problem, but it's also building this new identity. Yes. If I'm now going to say, okay, I'm going from old Maya as this particular woman, but now I'm coming in as a recognized woman, as an enlightened woman about how I may be treated by men. Then now I may say, okay, I'm not going to interact with these certain people this way. Or if I feel really anxious about this, I know, okay, I'm going to go watch this video because I know it calms me down Mm -hmm. or on this walk, or I'm going to write about it as much as I need to, just to get out all of that urge So it's really just figuring out, okay, what coping skills can we use in these particular situations? How do we deal with what we can't change? And how do we move forward in a positive way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's a lot we can't change all by ourselves, right? And there's a lot of systemic issues that contribute to a lot of marginalization 
in a lot of different places. So you said, so let's talk about race-based trauma. So tell me a little bit about the race-based trauma therapy that you do. Yes, it's, well, as the name kind of gets into, it's really talking about how someone's racial identity impacts their reality. Mm-hmm. So whether that's discussing maybe interactions at work and little things that are said. So someone's saying at the printer, hey, you know, did you listen to this new rap album? But you may not listen to rap. You may not remember it. You know, and that doesn't pass their mind because they're thinking you you look like someone who would be into that mm-hmm. or who could be on the front of the cover. So I must think that you're into that. So it, it can be as, I'm not going to say lighthearted. It's still a microaggression. It's microaggression. It, yeah, it's death by a thousand cuts, right? Yes, it could be that. And it could be something even more egregious where someone is straight up profiling you or someone doesn't want to give you the job because they don't think you're competent from the way that you look or maybe your name. They straight up throw away your resume. So really what I focus on with clients is discussing a lot of these experiences, validating them, recognizing where they are right now in that experience, and then also looking at how do they see themselves in general within that within in their racial identity, whether that's black, that's Polynesian, so on and so forth. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as being below? Do you see yourself as being in the middle, above, in between? What, what have you been told? How does the skin of your, the color of your skin impact, whether it's very high or excuse me, where it's very light skinned or if it's yeah. very dark skinned? And how do you deal with people within your community treating you a certain way or not? What are those signs that we deal with? Um, and then also recognizing that maybe family may not change us. So maybe family may not, maybe family is, let's say, lighter skin. This happens in Black families, but also Indian families and other cultures where there's colorism. We may be discussing, okay, your, your parents may not care that they're colorist. They may not care that because you look darker and because of that, they don't treat you with the same respect as your other siblings. They may not care to change that. So then how do we move forward in that dynamic? Do we say, hey, parents, you know, because of the discomfort, I don't want to teach that to my kid. I may not come here for Christmas all the time, or I may limit that time to an hour or two. And it's making those realistic adjustments so someone's mind and also self-esteem can be maintained. Yes. Yes. And then, so going back to the hypervigilance, so like when that may happen, sometimes the people that are sort of doing the microaggressions or whatever, they don't have the self-awareness. I don't, sometimes it is on purpose, definitely most of the time, but there are times where it's like, I just, I don't get what you're saying. Why are you being so mean to me? Like they're the one clutching their pearls. So, but they're the ones that have sort of initiated this toxic issue. So how do you, is that what you do? Do you just help people stand firm in their boundaries and that's why they go through their identities that they can have that voice for themselves that even when people because that's what happens the first first thing that happens when you set boundaries right is people try to push them down especially if they've been close to you if they've had access to you Mm -hmm. so how do you help them differentiate between no you're not actually a bad person these are healthy boundaries Mm -hmm. and like they may say those things, but they're not true about you. So you can still hold your boundaries. Like how do you help people get strong enough to hold their boundaries? Yeah. Um, so if it's in connection to kind of that race perspective, yeah, it's as we're doing that rebuilding of their own identity, I'm also going to be asking them, okay, what are things that we're willing to put up with and what aren't we willing to put up yes. with? Yes. 
And then practicing in our therapy session, okay, let's pretend that we're at home for Thanksgiving. Okay, so I'm gonna be mom and dad and this is how they behave. So now I'm gonna start being maybe boisterous. I might be passive aggressive, whatever the case is. And now that person may be practicing the techniques and then we might switch over and try it again and keep going. Or I may ask them, hey, can you write about a really, really painful experience yes. that you guys had and how you wish that would have went instead? Would you wish each party did, how you wish you responded and also what happened? And we go in session and we discuss that. The beginning, the middle, the end, how they could have changed the situation. And then that's where you kind of have that role playing coming in again. So it's really kind of this behavior modification meets a change in belief system in perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's through this rigorous, continuous process. There's times where we feel like we're super ahead and we're like, <laughs> we're through the world. Yeah, we shut that person down. Bam, bam. I don't have time. No, I don't. But have a blessed day. Yeah. We learn how to so <laughs> and then there's other times where we're like, oh, you know, triggered. Someone, yeah, you're triggered and all of that. <laughs> you know, you told someone yes to something you don't want to do because mm -hmm. it's hard to get rid of that people pleaser way from the past because you might've felt inadequate, so on and so forth. So it's really identifying all over and over again. It's really a game, I guess, therapy overall. Of mm -hmm. How do we get that self-awareness? And then what do we do with this self-awareness to improve ourselves or just yeah. to sit where we're at, you know? Yes. I wanted to ask, so race-based trauma, can that mm -hmm. come from things beyond you? So like things in history or in past, mm -hmm. Um, that maybe didn't directly happen to you, but sort of happened to people maybe you're related to or the same um, ethnicity as. Like, is there a larger trauma picture at play as well? Indeed, indeed. And and some would even say that the traumas of our parents and those before us come right back on our necks. So they do. It absolutely is a cycle. I think outside of the Black community, the Native American community has been very deeply impacted mm. by ways that their culture has been tried to be stolen um, from America. And I, I forgot the name of these schools in particular, but they used Residential to Residential schools. Yeah. There we go. See, you're very familiar. Awesome. Well, so in Canada, they only shut down about 20 years ago. And I don't know if what? you... Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> my, my dad was a product of like the 60s scoop. Like he was... Um, yeah, so it be yeah, so it's a long story, but um, he was just adopted by white people, but and anyway, so okay. and his birth records were all whitewashed, it's totally weird. But he, um, and right now we're going through this thing. I don't know if it shows in Florida on the news, I know I doubt you guys get Canadian news down there, but um, they found some bodies at some of the residential school sites because some of these buildings still stand. And they were doing some construction. They found some bodies of Native children. And so now they've started exhuming all the residential schools across Canada. And I think they're up to like 20,000 children that they found. What? It is nuts. And then, so now you got to celebrate. So now comes Canada Day, right? And do we celebrate? Do we not? Like, like coming to terms with this colonialism, mm -hmm. right? Like... Like it's right in our face now. And it's so crazy. It is, it is, it is back and forth a lot like in the States too, right? With the slavery and mm. the North and the South. It's very similar where people are like, just get over it already. 
it was like 20 years ago. Like, 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 mm, right. Or are you hearing things like um, with the indigenous population here? Uh, oh, so on one, when they found a bunch of the bodies, there was a bunch of protests. And in Winnipeg here, they they toppled some of the statues of the queens of Passet, Queen Elizabeth and that, Queen Victoria. They toppled some of the statues and then they were dancing on them. And a lot of us were really like, that's amazing. Like, it's okay. Like, let's, even Jesus tossed the tables. Like, let's do this, right? Like, let's, yeah. you're supposed to disrupt this stuff, right? That's, that's why, that's what we're supposed to do. And, but I can't believe how many, people like and you talk about the vernacular so i sort of mentioned that like thugs that's a word thrown around right to anyone that they disagree with what they're doing oh they're just thugs right and like it's demoralizing it's like no they're in pain this person you know started a whole movement that wiped out most of their family wiped out their way of life and yeah maybe he's only been on the ground for 20 years but that still hurts like to to you know like do you not get it? But people, so we have that combativeness here too. It's it's growing in Canada, which is really alarming. Um, and I hope it gets nipped in the bud at some point, but we're, we're really working on truth and reconciliation. So that's our movement here is to work with the Indigenous to um, not gloss over, not just like, here's some money, like go do what you want. It's, it's supposed to be like, we acknowledge what the truth is of yeah. how Canada was started so now how do we move forward together as a population, right? So mm-hmm. you hear, so now if you go to like um, a service or to a concert, they'll start now with uh, an acknowledgement of what land we're actually on. So they'll mention the tribe or the band that actually originated on this piece of land that, that originally owned this land. I mean, and, and that's just token stuff. So it's not real reconciliation, but it, it's a start mm-hmm. to the conversations, right? Like it's starting to reach people's, but we're trying to get beyond the token stuff, right? So I, sorry, I went off on a little rant about that, but <laughs> but it is, it is painful. It is painful stuff. I have, you know, I, I couldn't even imagine, like I am, like I come from European settlers. I have no clue, no clue, except for just what happened to my dad and he just happened to get adopted by European settlers right so it's (laughs) and it's been frustrating because there's that loss of identity like we have no attachment to that part of our lives we don't know anything about our culture our customs or like we don't know because this is the way we were raised and that's fine I love my grandparents they were amazing people they were very kind but Mm -hmm. but you lose right you lose something when you can't have that or when you can't lay claim to it there's something that gets lost I think in that right Absolutely. And that's what so much of that individual work is too, is reclaiming that part of yourself. Um, Even the parts that can't be reclaimed. I can't imagine how many people had emotional responses that morning when they started pumping that through the news about finding bodies. I can't imagine how many people who were there and who are, who are still alive, people who know people, even just as you're telling me now, it sends chills down my spine. It's, It's weird. Because it, it makes me wonder who did see and who didn't know. And yep. what kid was like, what happened to this person? It's just, and you're like, <laughs> six, seven, eight. that's not supposed to be going on. <laughs> no. It's horrible. Yeah, we're we're in the 2000s now. Like we're in the next century. This We should not be living this way still. It's insanity to me. I can't, anyways, anyways. Uh, I could, yeah, it's insanity. But um, so- 
we talked about race-based trauma. Now let's talk about the LGBTQ affirmative care. So share a little bit about what that is for and what that's all about. Well, it can look different depending which letter you are with all mm-hmm. the Yeah, bed. definitely. <laughs> um, because there's certain things, and I don't mean that in derogatory. No, it's, no, it's true. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Nope. Um, I've had the the pleasure to work with some youth who are who were trans yes. and adults, and that process is more about okay, um, how do we feel? How do we come to terms with how we feel in, in that process? Then how do we deal with maybe family concerns? Yes, um, that trauma that may or that misunderstanding or family often will blame themselves as if it's something. Um, that is like the kid just came and said they're a double murderer. So for some family members, it's very hard to come to terms. And it's very hard also for the person sitting in the therapist seat to hear their family say certain things in their yes. community. Um, but then also if you're transitioning, there's a process with that as well. So that's very different than maybe someone who's, let's say, um, may identify as queer and is maybe in their 40s. And they've outside of them being queer, they they're able-bodied, they have all this other stuff that's pretty, let's say what we expect, the mainstream American way, essentially. So they might have a decent job, all this stuff. Their experience may just be dealing with that queer identity. And although it does have impact on their reality, it may not have that same impact as that trans youth. So it's really being able to identify the components of someone's life. Um, and asking them, okay, how do you want to see yourself in this? Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes we even assume that everybody who is LGBTQ plus wants to be completely out or wants to be at the top of a, um, on top of their house with the, with the rainbow color flag. <laughs> <laughs> and while some are very extroverted and yes. excited, there's others who may be in other countries or maybe from other cultures or maybe in a different, different stage in the process who may not want that or might even be very comfortable, but just don't feel like that's something they need to say all the time. No. Or might not even be safe. Let's say if you're a young man who's playing football Mm -hmm. at a different school, there may be serious consequences for him saying something, even though it was 2023. Yes. So um, it's just coming to terms with all of that. And it's it's a lot within itself, but it's really (laughs) really more with other people I tend to find, how they perceive them than really them dealing with the identity. Um, But I think it just depends where they're on the process. You know what? That's really true. So again, I said I was going to talk about, but I'm going to talk a little more. My my oldest is non-binary and they changed their name. So they go by they, them, and they have changed their name to a a more non-binary name. And um, I remember because I was so, I chose their name, like their original name, their birth name. They're, now they call it a dead name right and I, I remember like uh when they announced it it was like I still love them but I had so much grief to process and I'm like oh my god this is not your problem like I, I'll go to therapy like <laughs> I'll I'm the problem again I will go to therapy but it's true because you they're the happiest they've ever been because now they actually feel like themselves and now like everyone else around them is like oh no but it I'm sad now. Well, why? Right. And I remember a friend of mine really kicked my ass hard in a really smart way. So when I called to tell them, called to tell my friend about my, my oldest, Mm -hmm. they said, 
That's amazing. Congratulations. You now have a they. So exciting, mama. And then and then they called my kid and said, Congratulations, happy coming out day. And I was like, Oh God, you're a way better mom than I am. I suck. And I went and got myself straight. But yeah, like <laughs> but it but it's true, right? Like we make these things, and yes, I think we do need to acknowledge our own grief in the process when things change around us, but we can't make our grief someone else's problem by any means. Absolutely. And you and the fact that you're so supportive of, mm-hmm. of your your child as they are is a sign that you are a really good mom so that's that's the key component and <laughs> trust me that's not from dealing with all good moms it's dealing with moms who are like I don't know what it is it's been an hour I don't know where my three-year-old went things like that where you're kind of like what <laughs> like, like what? you gotta watch them um, so I appreciate that but um, yeah, it's, it's, it really is different for each one. And that's the thing. Like, it's so easy, Chrissy, for someone, a mother to feel guilty and feel that shame and like, oh, I, you know, or to feel grief or anger. Like, you know, you're my baby. And that sometimes is connected to other emotions where maybe they felt that they were never loved by their family. So maybe this child was supposed to support, bring all that love in. So now that this kid is saying, I'm this, I'm that and building their own identity, it could be seen as a threat. Yes. So it really is so much more than just what the LGBTQ plus affirmative therapy is. You know, it's really their identity that brings them in the door into the seat, but it's really everything else that we usually end up speaking about. Um, so it's, it's an interesting journey. It is. And I love what I really love about your work is that it is individual. And I love that you don't have like oh, if it's this person, this type of person, I'm going to do this kind of therapy. Like you are very clear, Maya. No, I see the person for who they are. And I really dig in to figure out what they actually need. And I think that's, I mean, that's trauma-informed care right there, right? So. Thank you. I appreciate it. And a lot of it comes from therapists not asking me how I felt. So (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could say I'm just such a great clinician. I just know, like I have to meet them where they're at. But it's, it's, it's really from having some who were kind of pushy and would give me things to do that I didn't care to do. I love to write. So yeah. things that had to do with like writing and reading were perfect for me to deal with my emotional um, issues at the time. Whereas for my other friends, it was painting. They could do that for three, four hours and just get so much out. So I think with any therapist, it's really at its baseline. It has to be meeting that person where they're at and from there building a treatment plan that is around who they are and where they're trying to go. Absolutely. Like, how could you look at someone and say, you're great just the way you are, but do this differently. No, 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 no. (laughs) Those two things, it's an oxymoron. That's not how this is going to go. Right. So um, now going back to the race-based trauma, you have a support group called the Femme Noir group. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. And thank you for saying it correctly. That was Perfect. I well, Femme it. is French and we're, we're half French in Canada, right? So Femme Noir. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard like Femme Noir, Femme Noir. It's like, oh, <laughs> Americans. Oh my gosh. But yes. Um, so yes, Femme Noir is really a support group that is for um, African-American women or just any African really woman mm-hmm. who is looking for just support. And we are virtual Wednesdays at 8 p.m. And we talk 
about everything. It can be motherhood, it can be um, identity concerns, microaggressions at work, relationship issues, dealing um, with kind of like money concerns or like taking care of elderly parents. So there's so many things that we discuss that really goes into our experience. And it's for free, it's about an hour and a half. And all you need is a laptop or a phone. I've literally had women, <laughs> young women, who are coming out of work with their, their uniforms on and they're on yeah. the bus and just listening. <laughs> so it's um, <laughs> for everything. And that's the blessing in it is that so many people really bring their perspective. That's the richness of it. It's, I just have the pleasure of kind of setting up the table yeah. and they do all the food and it's, it's magnificent to see. So I love that. Um, if is. Funny enough, I've, I've had some men try to get into the group. So I don't know what that's about. <laughs> it's just very weird. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's been funny, but outside well, of that, we've had wonderful times. Well, someone will have to start an um noir. So that's what's gonna yes, happen. Yes, we do. We do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so what else would you like to share with us, Maya? Oh man. Um, well, I'm coming out with a new mixtape in about two weeks. It's called um, Therapy and Beats. Really? I'm actually, no, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't know. I thought it was like, I know a lot of meditation music has beats and stuff to it. So I was like, oh, really? Like, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm in meditation music on the side. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> I wish. Yeah, with sound bowls. Um, yes. <laughs> but um, the main thing is, I guess, just really that who you are is not as abnormal as you think it is. Mm -hmm. It's very normal. And your thoughts, your behaviors, your movements, it's all what makes you who you are. And any therapist who makes you feel like you're not validated, you're not worthy, you're too strange, or even that you need to put more work into the relationship than them, mm -hmm. then that's a sign that that's not for you. And there's so many therapists out here who can fit you. Not every therapist, coach, teacher is for everyone. They're out to, for specific people, for specific situations. So um, just, just keeping that in mind when you pick a therapist, because I've heard some really hard stories and some people don't want to go back to therapy. They think it's not worth it. It doesn't work. When in reality is they haven't found that right person just yet where they really can dig deep. So um, continue on that journey. Outside of that, I feel like Chrissy, those questions were amazing and oh, thank you. it's, it pretty much covered everything. So I really appreciate your preparation. It's, it's second to none. I've had no, I've never had anybody be this prepared. So. Oh, I really? Think. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Aww, that's so sweet. Thank you. See us ADHDers. We have hyperfixation, hyperfocus sometimes, right? <laughs> sometimes it comes in handy. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> um, you you talked about um what is it Brené Brown has that quote that I love it's about comparison and we talk about how comparison is competition on one side and conformity on the other so be like everybody else but be better at it so don't <laughs> yeah. it's nuts but we are individuals and I think and I I think that's what's scaring some people right now too is they're seeing people be okay with who they are and I don't know why that unsettles other people like, like it, it's like it almost gives them an uncertainty like if I don't know what's going on I can't be comfortable with myself and I, I don't understand that and I think it's 
Yeah. No, you could go. You could finish your thoughts. No, I was just saying, no, I was just going to say, I always find, I've always found stories fascinating and I've always wanted to get to know like the inside of people. So I, to me, like it's second nature to be curious and to see how people see things. But a lot of people, they don't like that. They can't handle that, right? They can. And it's weird because it's kind of a distortion of reality. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not, there's not one planet. There's not one star. There's not one cell. So why would there be one type of person? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. We live in a sea of diversity in everything. And the more you go into detail about the world around us, you realize nothing is really as it seems and there's a lot more complexity. So it's it's really a sign of kind of kind of going back to Dr. Gabor Mate that that some of that toxic thinking, that mental illness of society that is in denial and is afraid of taking that next step because it perceives it as taking a really big fall when in reality you're taking a dip before you fly. So mm -hmm. it's it's um it's very strange. And I think that's why we have to have these conversations and continue to force ourselves to think outside the box. Absolutely. And I love too, that you took sort of your experience from your growing up, your own background, and then used it to become a better caregiver. I think that's really amazing. That's really a testimony. That's where you take things that happen and you put them for good. Right. And there's a saying that I just learned not too long ago from the um, same Shazar. Oh, he, anyways, he teaches positive intelligence, but he always says, who knows what is bad or good? Because we just don't know until the story runs out, right? We just don't know. So something that can feel very horrible eventually could become something very good. And look how you blessed other people, Maya. Absolutely. And you too, Chrissy. Look oh, <laughs> Don't put me out on that. That's what I do all the time. Like, don't put me on a pedestal. I will fall harder than, oh my God, don't, 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 don't. Yeah. Oh my God. That's hilarious. Oh my God. That's so funny. So where can people find you, Maya? Yes. Well, I do have a website called Silent Psyche. Um, the Psyche is without a P in the beginning of it. So yes. it's as it sounds. And they can find me at silentpsyche.com or Silent Psyche on Instagram or Twitter. And I keep that updated with things for Femme Noir as well on there. Awesome. So if you want to contact me, you can always message me from there or email. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Maya. I so appreciate you. Oh my goodness, Chrissy. Thank you so much. This conversation was enlightening, hilarious, and just a joy. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you again, Maya. You're just such a pleasure and I'm just so happy that uh, we have connected and I just cannot wait to see where your work takes you and how many lives that you bless and touch along the way and, and help them see just how wonderful they really are for themselves. It's amazing the work that you're doing and thank you again. That's all I'm going to say. It's amazing. So happy. So please check her out in the show notes. Next week, we're going to stick to mental health, but we're going to talk about a very specific mental illness. I have Matthew Dixon coming on to talk about schizophrenia. He actually did a bike ride across Canada in order to raise awareness about schizophrenia. And he's going to share about a bit about his story about diagnosis or what his symptoms were, the stigma that comes not only with mental illness, but schizophrenia. It's a very misunderstood illness. Um, we often think of multiple personality disorder or crazy hallucinations, but that's, that's not 
all of the stories. So we're going to get a little more information on schizophrenia with Matthew Dixon. And uh, I think it's going to be really, really fascinating. Uh, and he's a wonderful speaker. So you're going to enjoy that show as well. So have an amazing uh, rest of your day. Don't forget to check out the Happy Life Planner. Don't forget to check out Hypno Babies and their different hypnosis products. Uh, so they have hypnosis, not just for people having babies. They do have the best hypnosis for people having babies, but they also have hypnosis for people like me that are not having babies anymore. Uh, so I use the uh, calming anxiety and stress uh, track every night before bed. And now it's so funny that I put in my headphones at night and I, I almost fall asleep instantly. I'm just, my body is just like, yep, soaks it in. It is, it is just awesome. So uh, check those out in the show notes and we will see you next week. Self-hypnosis is not just relaxation and meditation. It's actually healing and it's actually putting yourself in a suggestible state and it's programming your subconscious mind so that throughout the day, you actually have to actively think less about the things that are good for you. And hypnosis isn't something to be scared of. Hypnosis, self-hypnosis is a state that we're in naturally all day long in many parts of the day. So right when you first wake up, right before you go to bed, if you're you know, buried into a book and really engrossed in it, or you're watching TV and you're really into the show, those are actually states of self-hypnosis. And so you can use hypnosis for all sorts of things, for managing pain, relieving stress, helping with sleep, helping with confidence, helping with quitting bad habits like smoking. Uh, it's just a really wonderful way that you can do 10, 15 minutes a day very easily. And the thing is, you don't have to figure out how to do it yourself. So one of the products that I am an affiliate for is Hypno Babies. Now they do a lot of birthing and labor products and they do a lot of like uh, things for pregnant women and nausea and also labor pain control. But, you know, I'm past that age and the stuff that I use from Hypno Babies, especially is their stress and anxiety track at any time before bed. I get an awesome sleep and I have way less anxiety, which is a symptom of Hashimoto's uh, along with my depression. So it's been fantastic. I'm very proud to support them. They are, it is medical grade self-hypnosis. It is absolutely 100% safe and it is quite effective. And I think you really enjoy it. So go on to the store, the Hypno Baby store, link is in the show notes. If you use my coupon code, Christy accordingly, you will get 10% off anything that you order on the store online, 10% all yours. And it's well worth it. 